World War I may be hell in the West. It is pure hell ten times over for the Russians. For them, no glamour, no airplanes. Divisions without artillery, companies without rifles, rifles without bullets. The Russian casualties from typhus alone exceed the total casualties of the Germans. At the front, defeat, disorganization, and lonely death. At home, starvation and poverty, exceeding even previous Russian experiences. Finally, in March 1917, a demonstration in St. Petersburg starts over a simple demand for a higher bread ration, gets out of hand, includes a new demand, transfer of power from the Tsar to an elected parliament. The Tsar reacts in customary fashion, turns his troops loose on the demonstrators, but something goes wrong. The army joins the people. With incredible swiftness, the Tsar's regime falls. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 18 of the Energy of Empire series where I'll be examining one of the most consequential events of the 20th century, the Russian Revolution. The impact of this event can scarcely be overstated. It defined geopolitics for the rest of the century, and really up until the present day with the war in Ukraine. It set events in motion that led to tens or even hundreds of millions of deaths. Arguably, it economically neutered the largest country in the world, preventing Russia from ever really competing with the rising US empire. It also provided a fabled enemy for that empire, where the overthrow of countless governments could be justified as part of the fight against the Red Menace. In addition to the anti-communist crusade, it also gave rise to anti-communist conspiracy theories. At their most extreme, these posited that dark elements within the US government secretly supported the rise of communism and even facilitated the Russian Revolution itself. I would contend there are many examples of this claim being demonstrably incorrect, based on a misunderstanding of events around revolutions. I touched on this in episode 9. I mentioned that the Carter administration had a distinct lack of enthusiasm for Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza and made early overtures to the revolutionary Sandinistas. This led some on the American right to conclude the US government secretly supported communism in Nicaragua. The subsequent decade-long war the US waged against that country makes this claim hard to reconcile with reality. In the case of Russia, however, the idea of Western backing for the Red Revolution has gained widespread acceptance amongst many conspiratorial and generally alternative thinkers. Those that don't outright accept it as fact may remain intrigued by it. It therefore certainly justifies further examination. My aspiration for this episode is not to be conclusive, but to provide a foundation from where further discussion can take place. Before getting into the history, I'll illustrate just how contrasting accounts of this revolution are. A standard narrative has the Allies unified in a desperate effort to keep the Russian communists out of power. There are two major reasons for this. The first is that the communists, the Bolsheviks, were intent on withdrawing Russia from the war. This would allow Germany to conclude hostilities on the Eastern Front and direct all resources to the Western one. On the face of it, there couldn't be anything worse for the Allies. The second reason is that the Western business class holds a staunch opposition to any political movement that advocates for even the mildest of workers' rights. 
never mind communism. The very last thing they would ever want is to see the rise of an ideology based on the redistribution of wealth from rich to poor. Picking up on the latter of these reasons, it is certainly the case that for most of the 20th century, US foreign policy centred around playing whack-a-mole with any even slightly left-leaning government arising anywhere on the globe. I explored various examples of this in the first season, with the overthrow of Central American governments not even on the left, but whose interests just did not align with those of US corporations. In his classic book, Killing Hope, the great anti-imperialist writer William Blum makes the case that the United States' opposition to Russian communism set the template for the anti-communist crusade to come. Blum is unambiguous about US intentions, writing that, By the summer of 1918, some 13,000 American troops could be found in the newly born Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Two years and thousands of casualties later, the American troops left, having failed in their mission to strangle at its birth the Bolshevik state, as Winston Churchill put it. The young Churchill was Great Britain's minister for war and air during this period. Increasingly, it was he who directed the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Allies on the side of the counter-revolutionary White Army. What was there about this Bolshevik revolution that so alarmed the most powerful nations in the world? What drove them to invade a land whose soldiers had recently fought alongside them for over three years and suffered more casualties than any other country on either side of the World War? The Bolsheviks had had the audacity to make a separate piece of Germany in order to take leave of a war they regarded as imperialist and not in any way their war, and to try and rebuild a terribly weakened and devastated Russia. But the Bolsheviks had displayed the far greater audacity of overthrowing a capitalist, feudal system and proclaiming the first socialist state in the history of the world. This was uppiness, writ incredibly large. This was the crime the Allies had to punish, the virus which had to be eradicated, lest it spread to their own people. In 1918, the barons of American capital needed no reason for their war against communism other than the threat to their wealth and privilege. End quote. The narrative William Blum presents is not controversial. Those involved would only have disputed his cynicism of their motives. A post-war US Army report describes the intervention to suppress communism as one of the finest examples in history of honourable, unselfish dealings, under very difficult circumstances to be helpful to a people struggling to achieve a new liberty. End quote. Now let's turn to the man perhaps most associated with the controversial and opposing view, historian Anthony Sutton. For Professor Sutton, the United States actively supported the Bolsheviks in coming to power. I'll play a clip where he gives an overview of his case. Why did Wall Street support the Bolshevik Revolution? Well, you've got, you've got several possible answers. Um, they also supported Hitler, the very same people. So they support the left, they support the right. So you go back to the Hegelian dialectic, thesis versus antithesis gives you a synthesis. If they want the synthesis of new world order, they will get conflict. Conflict between apparent left, apparent right. There might be another reason that the capitalists want captive markets. Uh, they don't want to see the Soviet Union as another free enterprise, free society. And this is still the freest society in the world in the United States. So they, they doom these countries, whether it be the Soviet Union in 1917 or Nicaragua today, 
They doom these countries to Marxist dictatorship so that they can be controlled uh, from the economic and the political and financial viewpoint through what I see as the coming New World Order, the, the secular New World Order. So there may be a combination of reasons, and there's a deliberate creation of conflict to bring this about. So you have just made a rather shocking statement, and that statement is that American or international capitalists, as I call them, because they don't have any American loyalties, would prefer to have socialist and communist uh, captive states so that they can have captive markets. Yes, uh, these people are not American. They're internationalists, and they're part of being internationalists in their private conversations. And you just gave a quotation which I found in the um, State Department files from William Saunders, chairman of Ingersoll Rand, saying he thinks that uh, Soviet communism is the best form of, of uh, government, the best form of government for the Soviet Union. Getting back to the Bolshevik Revolution, one of the ironies of it is that both Lenin and Trotsky were in exile one in Germany, one in the United States. Tell us about how, who helped them get where they were going to make sure that revolution was pulled off. Well, let me summarize about four chapters into four minutes. Uh, Trotsky was in New York. Um, he had no income. I, I summed his income for the uh, year he was in New York. It was about $600. Yet he lived in an apartment. He had a chauffeured limousine. He had a refrigerator, which was very rare in those days. He left uh, New York and went to Canada on his way to the revolution. He had $10,000 in gold on him. He didn't earn more than $600 in New York. He was financed out of New York. There's no question about that. Um, the British took him off the ship in Halifax, uh, Canada. I got the Canadian archives. Uh, they knew who he was. They knew who Trotsky was. They knew he was going to start a revolution in Russia. Instructions from London came to put Trotsky back on the boat with his party and allow them to go forward. So there is no question that Woodrow Wilson, who issued the passport for Trotsky, and the New York financiers who financed Trotsky, and the British Foreign Office allowed Trotsky to perform his part in the revolution. Now over in Switzerland you get Lenin, who was in exile. He went through Germany in the famous sealed train by permission and by, with the encouragement of the German general staff. And yet Germany and Britain were supposedly fighting each other. And you get them both moving these two key revolutionaries into place inside Russia. And then, of course, the rest is history. They created the revolution with no more than about 10,000 revolutionaries. They needed assistance from the West, and they got assistance from Germany, from Britain, and from the United States to continue and consolidate the revolution. Just tell us all over again why. Why? Just tell you won't find this in the textbooks. Why is to bring about, I suspect, a plan to control world society in which you and I won't find the freedoms to believe and think and do as we believe. Did these uh, power brokers actually envision at that time a one-world government that would be socialist? Yes. The second statement I made was that they did not want the Soviet Union to develop into another free enterprise society and that this would offset, offset it. Aiding the revolution would offset this event. That was made as a statement in 1919. You have various books, one by Gillette, the razor blade Gillette, uh, the, uh, called The City, I think it was, which 
laid out this corporate socialism for the world to see as early as, what, 1905-1910. So around the turn of the century, you begin to see actually written statements by these internationalist businessmen of the kind of socialist empire they wanted to bring about. It's there, but these books, of course, are not included in your courses in political science and history at the regular universities. Well, talk about the Red Cross mission. Red Cross mission to Russia, 19, uh, 1918. About 17, bankers, lawyers, businessmen. Well, yes, had a couple to do, of doctors. A couple of, there were two doctors, I think. Uh, there were two doctors. Uh, what, was, what was the mission? The mission was financed by William Boyce Thompson, the Chase Manhattan Bank Federal Reserve System. The Red Cross didn't want to send the mission. The Red Cross said, we don't need a mission to Russia. They already have one in Romania, which was doing a good job. But William Boyce Thompson wanted this mission, and he put the money up. He financed it. And if you look, I, I printed a list of the people on the mission, and they were mostly bankers and lawyers, Wall Street lawyers, and people in and around the Wall Street establishment. The function or the purpose of this mission was to be in place to assist the Bolshevik Revolution. The Red Cross mission to Russia was a cover vehicle. It enabled these Wall Street elitists, these Wall Street manipulators to be there in place. And then I traced the cable, $1 million from the Morgan Company in New York to Petrograd. I forget to which bank, but it came from William Boyce Thompson, and which financed the revolution. And then they put pressure back in the State Department in Washington to actually sent arms to the revolution, which went forward in 1918. And then I found in the State Department files, files an extraordinary telegram in which Trotsky appealed to the State Department to send American army instructors to train the new Soviet army. And I think I reprinted that in uh, one of my earlier books. So briefly, the Red Cross mission was a cover vehicle to enable Wall Street to be there in place to guide and manipulate the ongoing Bolshevik revolution. And what was the response of the State Department? Oh, yes, they were quite willing to send U.S. arms instructors. Do you know how, to what I don't extent? know if they went forward. I know the arms, I know the rifles went forward. I didn't trace the, the response to the telegram, except it was approved within the State Department. And I reprinted the telegram. I never did find a response. That's probably taken out the files. Do you know the figure to which uh, Wall Street supported the Bolsheviks? Well, it was $1 million. Just the William Boyce Thompson figure? Uh, that figure. But then you've got the other assistance. For example, the whole Siberian episode. See, in 1918, the Bolsheviks really only controlled Moscow and what was then Petrograd, which is now Leningrad. They could not have beaten off uh, the White Russians. Um, the, uh, the Czechs, who were in Russia at that time, uh, the Japanese, who were anti-Bolshevik. They could not have beaten it off without assistance from the United States and from Britain. And the Siberian Railroad is critical because if you look at that map of Russia, you know, Moscow is, and Leningrad are stuck at the left end and you've got the vast expanse of Russia, which, and the, the backbone is the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Now, the history books will tell you that American troops went in, they occupied the Trans-Siberian Railroad in order to prevent the Japanese from coming in. Well, this is absolute nonsense. Uh, I've never written the book. I hope to get around to it one day. I've got two big boxes of files on this. 
The purpose of the American army in Siberia was to hold the Trans-Siberian Railroad until the Bolsheviks were strong enough to take it over. And they did, did that very effectively. They held off the Japanese. They held them back near Manchuria. They evacuated the Czechs out along the Trans-Siberian Railroad. The French and the British gave up because they said the Americans are helping the Bolsheviks. They evacuated. And in one of these books, I reprinted a little clipping from the New York Times of, I think, 1919. Finally, the Bolsheviks got to Vladivostok right at the, uh, the far end of Siberia, near Japan, in which the local commissar addressed the American army and thanked them for aiding the revolution. And that was in the New York Times, and I reprinted, reprinted it. Now, this is totally contrary to everything you find in the textbooks. The textbooks say we went into Siberia, um, to at least be neutral, and uh, I suppose most people would assume we went in to stop the Bolsheviks. We didn't. We went in to help the Bolsheviks. There's no question about that. But as I say, that's a book I haven't written yet. There's obviously a lot there to unpack, but essentially we have two completely contradictory claims about both the Russian Revolution and the nature of the US, or globalist, empire. Is this empire antithetical to communism? Or, at least in certain cases, does it covertly support it? Let's park that question for a moment. I'm going to run through a list of the various actors who desired revolution in Russia. Irrespective of any wider conspiracy, the most central of these has to be the Russian people themselves. I'll therefore start with a bit of background of how this came to be. For this section, I'm going to draw heavily on historian Ralph Rako's book, Russia and the Soviet Union. Professor Reiko analyzes Russian history from a libertarian individual rights perspective. For some reason, it's not available in print, but I'd highly recommend the audio version. Russia is famous for its especially autocratic style of government, but that's not always been the case. Prior to the Mongol invasion, the Russian people were relatively free. The power of the monarch was controlled by the boyars, the noblemen, and peasant committees. The peasants had a right to freedom of movement, which wasn't the case in much of Western Europe at the time. When Ivan III consolidated power and threw the Golden Horde out, he did so at the cost of such liberties. Ivan established himself as an absolute monarch, effectively owning all of Russia. He turned the peasants into serfs by binding them to the land. An Orthodox Christian, Ivan erected what could be thought of as the first Iron Curtain cutting Russia off from Western Europe because of the latter's Catholicism. It is Ivan who first adopts the title of Tsar, a corruption of Caesar, indicating his belief in Moscow being the Third Rome after the fall of Constantinople. You can perhaps see this sense of Holy Russia's moral destiny living on today, with Vladimir Putin pushing back against the perceived moral corruption of the West. The brutality of autocracy peaked during the reign of Ivan's son, Ivan IV, known as Grozny, the Terrible. Ivan Grozny enacted a massacre in the city of Novgorod due to perceived treason by the local church. Taking a clip from Professor Reiko's book, Russia and the Soviet Union, a witness described the scene. The Tsar ordered the citizens to be tortured before him cruelly and inhumanly, with many kinds of unspeakable tortures. Then he ordered his helpers to tie those tortured people by their hands and feet to horse-drawn sleighs, 
to be heard from the bridge into the river Volkhov, where they were stabbed and hugged by his men who cruised the river in small boats. And he ordered the wives and children and even suckling infants to be hurled in too. Day after day, up to a thousand people were thrown into the water. Ivan gave orders to loot the merchandise in the shops of all of the marketplaces and tear down the shops to plunder the houses of the townspeople. This all he did and more from the wrath of God and for our sins. Russian nobleman Andrei Kurbsky fled to Poland, from where he wrote to Ivan, rebuking him. What, Ivan? Do you think yourself immortal? Is there not a God and a supreme tribunal for kings? Fear the dead. Those whom you have massacred are by the throne of the Almighty and ask for vengeance. Your armies will not save you. The vile flatterers who bring you their children to satisfy your obscene appetites, they will not save you. Directed towards a czar who prided himself on being holy, you may think this was a gotcha. Not so for Ivan, however, who replied to Kurbsky, saying, All the Russian sovereigns are autocrats, and no one can find fault with them. They have rewarded or punished their subjects as they have seen fit, without being answerable to anyone. The monarch can exercise his will over the slaves whom God has given him. If you do not obey the sovereign, even when he commits an injustice, not only are you guilty of treason, but you damn your immortal soul. For God himself orders you to obey your prince blindly. I've dwelt on this point as I think it's an interesting demonstration of the autocratic mindset that flows through the whole world but infects Russian history particularly. This mentality runs through the Russian people. The ambassador to Moscow from the Holy Roman Empire observed, The Tsar speaks and everything is done. The life and fortune of the clergy, the nobility and the citizens all depend on his supreme will. All the people consider themselves to be slaves of their prince. He has no opposition, and everything he wills appears just, as in the divinity. For the Russians are persuaded that the great prince is the executor of heaven's decrees. God and the Tsar will it. God and the Tsar know best. Such are the everyday expressions among them. Nothing equals their zeal for his service. I do not know whether it is the character of the Russian nation which has formed such autocrats, or whether the autocrats themselves gave this character to the nation. The Romanov dynasty came to power in 1613 and would rule Russia for over 400 years. The autocracy continued through the reign of Peter the Great, who famously strove to drag Russia westwards into Europe. 
both territorially and culturally. To fund this, he attempted to develop the Russian economy, but in true autocratic style, did so through state monopolies. Seeing himself as a paternal figure, he essentially tried to recreate Europe through force. Is not everything done at first by compulsion? That there are few people willing to go into business is true, for our people are like children who never want to begin the alphabet unless they are forced to by their teachers. At first, it seems very hard to them, but once they have learned it, they are thankful. Already much thanksgiving is heard for what has already borne fruit. So, in industrial affairs, we must start by compelling and showing the people the way. Ralph Rako writes of Peter wanting the results of European culture, progress and wealth, but not understanding what had produced them, freedom, individualism and respect for law. He quotes a French observer who eloquently describes Russia as like fruit that is both green and rotten at the same time, as it has been ripened by force. Peter himself lamented that his subjects were animals who I have dressed up to look like men. Reiko contends his forcing of European culture ultimately left Russians hostile to Western ideas, which they came to see as antithetical to their own culture. Russia went through a succession of leaders, such as Catherine the Great and Alexander I, who came to power expressing a desire to expand freedom, but ultimately ended up cynical and despotic. Catherine, for example, embraced the ideals of French Enlightenment thinkers, until a peasant revolt and the French Revolution made her reconsider. She ultimately relegated her bust of the philosopher Voltaire to the attic, and this is symbolic of her wider attitude. Alexander I vowed not to repeat Catherine's mistakes, until the French invasion during the Napoleonic Wars pushed him in a more autocratic direction. In 1825, the reign of Tsar Nicholas I began with a revolt. The Decemberist uprising was led by disgruntled army officers who had formed secret societies. After repelling French invaders, Russian troops had marched all the way to Paris. This had opened their eyes to how different things were in Europe. One soldier explained, When Napoleon invaded our land, the Russian people became aware of their power. The government itself spoke such words as liberty, emancipation. Returning home, our soldiers spread discontent. We shed our blood, they said, and now we are forced once more to groan under the feudal yoke. We freed the motherland from the tyrant, and now we ourselves have a tyrant over us. The soldiers discussed nothing but how good it is in foreign lands. This naturally brought up the question, why should it not be the same in Russia? The coup attempt obviously failed and resulted in hundreds of executions. Tsar Nicholas did feel it necessary, however, to make some concessions to quell the broader demand for change. Some laws were modernized, but Nicholas utterly refused to budge on the question of supreme authority of the Tsar. In addition to reforms, 
there was also an increased level of repression and a cracking down on independent thought. Throughout the 19th century, there was growing discontent and revolutionary further in Russia. Ralph Rako observes that this rarely took the form of agitation for individual rights. It was generally collectivist in nature, and often held contempt for the peasant class, who would, it was assumed, need to be led by the intellectuals. The peasants, in turn, were sceptical that these intellectuals really knew what was best for them. In 1855, the Tsar Liberator, Alexander II came to the throne and looked to reform Russia after the humiliating defeat in the Crimean War. In 1861, Alexander issued the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing 40 million serfs. Violent uprisings were common, and Alexander thought it was better to liberate the serfs from above than have them liberate themselves from below. They did not get their land, however, and had to pay compensation to the landlord. Land became the property of a village commune, not individual owners. Just as an interesting aside, I am struck by the parallels with the United States technically abolishing slavery at almost exactly the same time. Here's how the anarchist Peter Kropotkin described serfdom in Russia in his memoirs. Throughout my childhood and youth, I heard constant reports of the way serfs were treated. Men and women torn from their families, lost in gambling, or traded for a pair of hunting dogs, children taken and sold, the wielding of the knout, which occurred every day, of surf revolts, suppressed by flogging to death every tenth or fifth man taken at random, and by raising whole villages whose inhabitants then went begging for bread. As to the poverty, no words would describe the misery to those who have not seen it. There were further decentralizations of power during the 1860s, including a review of the judicial system and the establishment of local assemblies, which brought political decision-making closer to the people. In addition to freeing the serfs, Alexander permitted thousands of young Russians to study abroad. They would often return home filled with radical ideas. Initially, this new group of radicals pursued a strategy of attempting to win support from the peasants. But as this failed, they turned to more violent methods, positioning themselves as an enlightened vanguard that would lead a revolution. The most militant of these factions, Narod Navalya, or the People's Will, assassinated Tsar Alexander in 1881. Far from causing the regime to collapse, the new Tsar, Alexander III, simply concluded that his father had made too many compromises. He initiated a crackdown and started exiling hundreds of people to Siberia each year. Alexander III was also an anti-Semite, and conditions for Jewish people became unbearable. This had the long-term effect of a disproportionate number of Jews becoming involved in revolutionary movements. It also created a Jewish diaspora, mostly in the United States, who obviously didn't like the Romanovs all that much. Discontent continued to grow during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II. In addition to the rising tide of radicalism, Ralph Rako attributes some of this discontent to the Russian government's attempt to boost industry by introducing high protective tariffs, as they had the effect of lowering living standards. Geostrategic considerations aside, 
A substantial part of Russia's decision to push towards War of Japan in 1905 was a ploy to take people's minds away from domestic problems. The Minister of the Interior described the need for a victorious little war to stem the tide of revolution. This plan obviously backfired horrendously with the loss of the Russian fleet and ultimate defeat in war. This led to the 1905 incident known as Bloody Sunday, where thousands of working people marched to the Winter Palace to present a petition written by a priest, Father Gapon. Sire, your officials have involved our country in a detestable war and led it to ruin. The toiling masses are being crushed. We working men have no rights. They have no voice in the expenditure of the enormous amounts raised from us in Texas. We humbly petition. Let everyone have a free and equal vote. Let there be elections for a constituent assembly. We speak to thee, sire, as to father. Soldiers opened fire on the crowds, killing hundreds of people. This sparked revolution across the country, with people forming councils, or Soviets, to present their demands. Students took over universities and peasants attacked their landlords, demanding equal rights. A newly formed political party demanded rights for the individual, freedom of the press and of association, and national representation through a parliament. A general strike was declared, and when the railway men joined in, Russia was brought to a standstill. Seeing the only alternative as being extreme violence, Tsar Nicholas capitulated to demands for freedom of the press and a parliament, or Duma. Technically, this was the end of Russian autocracy. A sufficient number of protesters accepted this compromise for the remainder to be dealt with by the army, who had remained loyal to the Tsar. There were mass executions of around 2,500 people. Nicholas soon backtracked on the parliament, ensuring his supreme authority was not challenged. Revolutionary violence remained high over the following years, with thousands of incidents taking place, often killing civilians in the process. This led to thousands more executions. The regime ultimately stabilised through the Okhrana, the secret police, effectively infiltrating revolutionary groups. In addition to this harsh crackdown, Prime Minister Peter Arkadyevich Stolypin enacted reforms aimed at the long-term stabilisation of Russia. His plan was to turn the peasants into a conservative group by making them private property owners, essentially giving them something they could lose in a revolution. By 1916, independent peasants owned two-thirds of the cultivated land in private possession in European Russia. They had leases on most of the rest, and held 90% of the livestock. Here's how Stolypin described his plan. We must provide the capable, hard-working Russian peasant, the salt of the Russian earth, with the opportunity to free himself from the hindrances he now faces. He must be given freedom to work, to enrich himself, to have charge of his own property. Then, possessing a sense of his own worth, he will bring culture, enlightenment, and abundance to the village. The small private landowner is the nucleus on which rests all stable order 
in the state. Stolypin himself, however, was assassinated in 1911, on no less than the 11th attempt. His murderer, Dmitry Bogrov, was a Jewish socialist who claimed to have carried out the act in revenge for the anti-Semitism of the Russian Empire. Bogrov, however, was an informer for the secret police, and the Tsar personally intervened to halt an investigation. It's suspected that conservative monarchists opposed to Solipin's land reforms may have ultimately been behind the murder. It's worth noting that socialists such as Lenin also opposed Solipin's reforms, as they sapped the revolutionary potential from the peasants. You could see this as an ideological alignment between the extreme left and the extreme right. Stolypin saw it as essential that Russia avoid war at all costs, saying, We need peace. A war would be fatal for Russia and for the dynasty. Every year of peace fortifies us, not only militarily, but also economically. Besides, and this is the most important point, the power of public opinion is growing in our land, and with it, the security of parliamentary institutions. Five years after the 1905 uprising, radical groups were on the decline. Constitutional government was normalising and the economy was booming. Vladimir Lenin recognised that war was now the only way revolution could be brought about. He wrote that a war between Austria and Russia would be a very useful thing, but it was hardly likely that old Franz Josef or Nicholas would oblige us. Oblige they did, however, and after an initial burst of patriotism, the disastrous conduct of the war undid the previous decade's work of stabilisation and all but guaranteed revolution. On the 25th of February 1917, food shortages in St. Petersburg made people desperate. A protest turned into a strike, and unlike in 1905, soldiers now refused to fire upon the people. On the 1st of March, the Imperial Guard mutinied, and Tsar Nicholas decided to abdicate. Russia now had a provisional government, led by socialist Alexander Kerensky. Lenin and the Bolsheviks wanted Russia out of the war immediately, but Kerensky instead initiated another disastrous offensive. Russia fell into chaos as soldiers deserted, factories closed, and peasants refused to sell their grain at prices decreed by the government. All of this chaos led to the Second Revolution, the October Revolution, when Lenin and the Soviets took over. He immediately withdrew Russia from the war, ultimately conceding vast amounts of territory to the Germans. Lenin instantly became dictatorial, and the Red Terror was let loose across Russia. A civil war broke out, and it would be three years before the Soviets consolidated their power. So that's a whistle-stop tour of Russian history up until the revolution. I've deliberately left out any mention of foreign influence, as that's what I'm going to look at now. I'll run through the actors external to Russia that, at the very least, desired revolution there. It turns out a surprising number of external actors were interested in fermenting revolution in Russia. Some obvious ones, some not so obvious. To start with the most obvious, we have the Germans. There's no great mystery as to why Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany might have wanted to bring about revolution in Russia. The Germans actually also looked to support Irish nationalists and French pacifists too. But Russia was obviously the weakest link in the Entente chain. The German government spent millions of marks producing and distributing revolutionary propaganda. They also supplied weapons and dynamite, 
which the revolutionaries used to sink ships and damage port facilities. At the time of the February Revolution, Lenin was exiled in Switzerland. The Kaiser arranged for him and his colleagues to travel by train through their territory to his ultimate destination of St. Petersburg. In today's money, it's reckoned the Germans spent just over half a billion euros subverting the Tsar. Given it led to the elimination of Russia from the war, that probably represents an excellent return on investment. The Germans weren't the first nation to conceive of employing this strategy against Russia. Back in the 1880s, British Prime Minister Lord Robert Salisbury wrote to his ambassador to Russia that, quote, Russia's only weak point was her financial embarrassment, and if we become her chronic enemy, it is to that weak point that our efforts must be addressed. We must lead her into all the expense we can, in the hope that a few steps further must push her into the revolution over which she seems constantly to be hanging. End quote. As we explored in the last episode, preventing Russia from occupying the Turkish Straits was a central tenet of British geostrategy throughout the second half of the 19th century. A strategy that was, ostensibly, dropped just prior to World War I. The Germans weren't the first nation to actually employ this strategy either. During the war of 1904-5, the Japanese had also employed revolutionary propaganda. It was said to have been distributed to 50,000 Russian soldiers in prisoner of war camps. Some reports claim that nearly three quarters of these men became revolutionaries. The Japanese propaganda effort, along with their wider war, was funded by another enemy of the Tsarist regime. Russia's anti-Semitism earned the Romanovs the hatred of Jews the world over. Powerful New York banker, Jacob Schiff, supplied the Japanese with half of their total war expenditure, hoping that a Russian defeat might lead to revolution and an end to Jewish persecution. The Japanese would have been quite unable to fight the war without Schiff's support. Schiff additionally claimed to have blocked every effort by the Russians to raise a loan in the United States from 1904 to 1916. He also worked to have the Russian-American Commercial Treaty cancelled, and succeeded in 1911. The Russian government responded by placing a double tariff on US goods. Another group that may have had an interest in replacing the Tsar was the American business community. Prior to the war, foreign investments in Russia were dominated by France, Britain and Germany. The US share was no more than 5%, with little exports and imports passing between the two countries. If you recall from the first season, the United States was willing to carry out regime change operations in tiny Central American countries in order for US corporations to dominate markets there. What, then, might they be willing to do in order to control the largest and one of the most resource-rich countries in the world? It's also worth mentioning that, Unlike tiny Central American countries, if Russia chartered an independent course of development, it would ultimately come to compete with American industry. Regardless of what extent the business community may have supported the revolution, as soon as it occurred, they poured into Russia in search of new opportunities. There are also humanitarian groups, such as the Society of Friends of Russian Freedom. This consisted of an odd alliance of Quakers, pacifists and socialists, alongside Wall Street financiers. The humanitarians in this group were motivated by accounts of the brutality of the Tsar's regime, especially the Siberian exile system. While such accounts are no doubt true, historian Richard Spence points out that prior to the attempted revolution of 1905, 
the Russian justice system executed a mere fraction of the number of people the US one did. Regarding brutality, Spence writes, on an index of human misery and degradation, it is doubtful that much distinction could be drawn between a Siberian labor camp and a Louisiana chain gang. End quote. The Friends of Russian Freedom raised funds, distributed information or propaganda, and hosted talks by political exiles. It's an example of how business interests can harness or weaponize humanitarian concerns. After the failed revolution of 1905, the US media came out condemning the Tsar's regime. The New York Times editorialized that gunpowder is His Majesty's only argument with his protesting people, and the autocracy, of course, rules only by force and terror over its subject people. The Scranton Republican wrote off, thousands slaughtered, men, women and children shot down in cold blood by merciless soldiers, and squadrons of marauding Cossacks ordered to kill without mercy. New York Supreme Court judge and future mayor, William Gaynor, declared that if the Russian people could not end this tyranny, the combined civilizations of the world would have to interpose, as did the United States in the case of Cuba. End quote. Finally, we have a group that is not external to Russia, but certainly worth mentioning, the Akrona, or secret police. What exactly their motives were remains something of a mystery. I've already mentioned how the assassin of Prime Minister Peter Salipin was an informer for them, but so was Father Gapon, the priest who headed up the protest march to the Winter Palace. In fact, he was exposed and murdered for this the following year. It doesn't stop there. Revolutionary terrorist chief Yevno Azev, the man who ordered the murder of Gapon, was also an informant. During his career as a double agent, Azef had arranged the assassinations of the Minister of Interior and the Governor-General of Moscow, who just happened to be the Tsar's uncle. So we have a situation where both Russia's leading revolutionary leader and leading terrorist figure were both double agents for the secret police. That would be akin to something as crazy as both Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness informing for MI5. Anyway. Okay, so everything I've laid out so far is... I think, a perfectly documentable, supportable account of the Russian Revolution. Some aspects of the external influences, or the shady dealings of the Akrona, may not have attracted the attention they deserve, but they are solidly supported by the evidence. I'm now going to move on to some of the more fringe accounts, specifically ones claiming that forces in Britain and the United States backed both the February and October revolutions as they actively wanted the Bolsheviks to come to power. As I mentioned, this position is so fringe within the mainstream as to never get mentioned, and so mainstream within the fringe as to be taken for granted. I may be indulging in some mild hyperbole there, but you get the point. I think by far the most famous writer on this subject is Anthony Sutton. We also have Jerry Doherty and Jim McGregor, whose alternative take on the First World War I've been evaluating through this series. There were also such colourful characters as Jury Lima, an anti-Soviet dissident who was once expelled from the Union. Lima places the Russian Revolution in the context of an Illuminati plot that encompassed Freemasonry, the French Revolution, and the murder of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. That might be a little bit too much to take on for today. As the title suggests, Anthony Sutton's Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution 
concerns itself primarily with the second of the two Russian revolutions. I'll therefore start with Doherty and McGregor's book, Prolonging the Agony, as a guide to the deeper conspiracies of the initial February one. Just as a recap, Doherty and McGregor's broad thesis is that imperialists within Britain initiated the First World War primarily as a way to cut down Germany as a rising power, a Thucydides trap. In spite of being allied to them, they also wish to cut down Russia, and crucially deny her access to the Turkish Straits, the very thing promised to her as an enticement into the war. This all fits into the wider narrative of Cecil Rhodes' plan for a reunification of Britain and the United States, and the creation of an Anglo-American establishment that would dominate the world. Doherty and McGregor contend that Britain never really needed Russia to win the war, as, quote, all that was needed to achieve victory was to stop the supplies of food, oil, minerals, gun cotton, and the wherewithal to produce munitions in Germany. End quote. When the United States entered the war, British imperialists sought to foment revolution in Russia as a way of removing her, thereby denying her a place at a future negotiating table, and ultimately, access to the Turkish Straits. The imposition of a communist government would also hinder Russian economic development for years to come thereby removing their other main competitor in the great game. As theories go, this is brilliant. What evil geniuses men like Lord Alfred Milner must have been to concoct such a fiendish plan, drawing Russia and Germany into mutual destruction. But does the evidence support it? Doherty and McGregor's case follows on from the subject of the last episode, the assault at Gallipoli which they contend was a pantomime put on by the British to convince the Russians of their sincere intentions regarding the Straits. They go on to describe how Russia's military leaders planned a massive offensive consisting of 7 million men for the summer of 1917. They intended to breach the gates of Berlin, Vienna and Constantinople. Doherty and McGregor claim that, quote, The Russians believed that the very pressure of this colossal army combined with a simultaneous offensive by the British and French on the Western Front, would have beaten Germany to her knees and would have led to an overwhelming victory by September 1917. End quote. The only snag was that the Russians did not possess sufficient artillery, but they were confident the British and French would supply it. Lord Alfred Milner, the inheritor of Cecil Rhodes' secret society for the establishment of the Anglo-American World Order, led a delegation to Russia in January of 1917. The purpose of this mission was to encourage the Russians and to assess whether they were in a position to make good use of supplies. Milner concluded that they were not and refused to send them the needed artillery. Doherty and McGregor present this as a crazy decision. They see it as obvious that such a massive Russian offensive would have succeeded, bringing a decisive end to the war. They assert Milner's choice can only be understood as a way of deliberately extending the war beyond the summer of 1917. The problem I have with this argument is that up until that point, Russian offensives had not gone well. It's not obvious to me that this one would have been completely different. Additionally, and even though it apparently escaped Lord Milner's notice, the country was just days away from revolution. It's hard not to believe there were plenty of sensible reasons to not supply them with extremely valuable artillery. Why are Doherty and McGregor so assured of Russian victory? They draw on a book called The World at the Crossroads by Boris Brassol. 
Brasson was a lieutenant in the Russian army. After the war, he lived in the United States, where he became the most prominent proponent for the restoration of the Russian monarchy. Often accused of anti-Semitism, because he was an anti-Semite, he is credited with being the first person to publish the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in America. I'll have more to say on Brasol in a moment. For now, I'll just point out that the opinion of a disgruntled loyalist to the Romanovs seems like a very weak basis for the claim that Russia would definitely have won the war in 1917 if only they'd been supplied with artillery. Especially so, since Milner's grotesque blunder here seems to have escaped the attention of every other historian. Doherty and McGregor also cite Robert Bruce Lockhart's book, Memoirs of a British Agent. Lockhart was a diplomat in St. Petersburg during Milner's visit. I have to conclude they quote him in a way that is overly generous to their case. To illustrate, Doherty and McGregor write, quote, From the very start, Milner used the, quote Lockhart, inefficiency of the Russians, end quote Lockhart, as an excuse to turn down their request for artillery, end quote. I'm sorry if that quote within a quote was hard to follow. The essential point is that Doherty and McGregor take the words inefficiency of the Russians from Lockhart's text and place it in their context of Alfred Milner using this as an excuse. Without being explicitly stated, I think it's fair to say that the reader gets the impression that Bruce Lockhart believes Milner is making an excuse. However, in context, Lockhart's passage reads, quote, From the first day of his arrival, Milner had realised the inefficiency of the Russians, and he made no attempt to conceal his opinion that he was wasting his time. End quote. Lockhart says nothing about Milner making excuses, and does nothing to contradict his impression that the Russians were in disarray. He does not express the opinion that there is anything untoward about Milner's refusal to supply artillery, or contend that doing so would have surely concluded the war. According to Neil Faulkner's book, A People's History of the Russian Revolution, both the British and French supplied vast amounts of rifles, machine guns, cannon and ammunition to Russia for their offensive after the February Revolution. I find this difficult to reconcile with Doherty and McGregor's thesis. Doherty and McGregor also cite comments made in the House of Commons, where Chancellor of the Exchequer Andrew Law said, quote, I have seen statements emanating from our enemies that it was owing to Lord Milner that the Tsar was overthrown. End quote. Taken in isolation, it sounds like Law is raising this as a serious accusation and perhaps demanding answers. Read in context, however, things appear quite different. Law is answering a question from an Irish MP regarding an impression said to be prevalent in Russia, that the British government was, quote, desirous of upholding the old regime and discouraging and checking the movement for the establishment of popular rights, end quote. So, in other words, the British government is being accused of propping up the Tsar. Bonalor responds by saying, quote, I have not seen any statement as to such an impression as that. I have seen statements emanating from our enemies that it was owing to Lord Milner that the Tsar was overthrown, end quote. I'm not 100% certain, but the impression I get is that Law did not contend that the British government had acted to either support or overthrow the Tsar. Rather, he is pointing out that rumours are flying in all directions and that the Germans are spreading propaganda. Whatever the case, the context is important. One further claim Doherty and McGregor make is that British agents funded the revolution through handing out 25 ruble notes to Russian soldiers a few hours before they mutinied against their officers and sided with the revolutionaries. Here, they reference G. Edward Griffin's famous book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Griffin, in turn, references an obscure Russian dissident, 
Arsene de Gulevich, and his book, Tsarism and Revolution. There, we finally arrive at the most primary source, French General Maurice Janin. General Janin was chief of the Allied military mission in Siberia during the Russian Civil War, and he did believe that the British were the hidden hand behind the February Revolution. In his diary, he recorded that, quote, Russian military and political leaders blamed mainly the English, as the English would like a fragmented Russia that would be dependent upon them, and that, at the time of the outbreak of the First Revolution, St. Petersburg was teeming with English agents, and it was impossible not to see the provisional government formed after the revolution was completely orientated towards England. End quote. General Janin references two nameless sources, one of whom made this claim about witnessing British agents handing out 25 ruble notes. He also points to Lord Milner and Ambassador George Buchanan as the engineers of the plot. Buchanan was actually a supporter of the Tsar, who, in early 1917, warned him of impending revolution. Quote, if I were to see a friend walking through a ward on a dark night along a path which I knew ended in a precipice, would it not be my duty, sir, to warn him of his danger? And is it not equally my duty to warn your majesty of the abyss that lies ahead of you? You have, sir, come to the parting of ways, and you have now to choose between two paths. The one will lead you to victory and glorious peace, the other to revolution and disaster. Let me implore your majesty to choose the former. End quote. General Jinnin's testimony is, I think, by far the strongest evidence Doherty and McGregor present for British involvement in the February Revolution, and it consists of diary entries from one French general based upon unnamed observers. Not really enough to base a massive revision of history upon. With that being said, I would not fall over in shock if it were true. Maybe the British did come to believe that both their short-term interests for the war, as well as their long-term economic interests, would be better served with the Romanovs out of the way. It would be shocking if they hadn't acted in ways, unknown to us, to influence the makeup of the new government once the revolution was underway. I do think that imperial powers cutting their losses with failing regimes is often misinterpreted as support for revolutionaries, the United States with Baptista in Cuba and Somoza in Nicaragua, for example. It seems to me, however, that the actual evidence for British involvement is something very close to nothing. If it were true, however, it wouldn't cause me to question my fundamental worldview in any way. That's not the case if the British and Americans saw the February Revolution as a mere stepping stone to ultimately bringing the Bolsheviks to power. If this is true especially if it were part of some Anglo-American New World Order plot, then it really would challenge what I think I know about the world. So at the risk of upsetting my apple cart, let's now look at the evidence for this position. The idea that Wall Street financiers brought about the Bolshevik Revolution is the claim I would suggest Anthony Sutton is most famous for. However, that's not what the vast majority of his book, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, is about. Overwhelmingly, he is documenting financiers and captains of industry forming alliances with the Bolsheviks after, and only after, they came to power. Prior to that point, some of them had been equally, if not more, supportive of the Kerensky government. William Boyce Thompson is an example. Sutton cites his giving the Bolsheviks $1 million as evidence of American capitalists supporting communism. However, in his book, he explains that Thompson had previously given $2 million to the provisional government. 
They simply wanted to do business in one of the world's largest markets. I'll come on to that in a moment, but first I'll start with the arguments for a more extreme position. Overwhelmingly, these center around the mysterious movements of Leon Trotsky. He left uh, New York and went to Canada on his way to the revolution. He had $10,000 in gold on him. He didn't earn more than $600 in New York. He was financed out of New York. There's no question about that. Um, the British took him off the ship in Halifax, uh, Canada. I got the Canadian archives. Uh, they knew who he was. They knew who Trotsky was. They knew he was going to start a revolution in Russia. Instructions from London came to put Trotsky back on the boat with his party and allow them to go forward. So there is no question that Woodrow Wilson, who issued the passport for Trotsky, and the New York financiers who financed Trotsky, and the British Foreign Office allowed Trotsky to perform his part in the revolution. At the time of the February Revolution, Leon Trotsky was living in New York. He managed to find his way back to Russia and became an integral part of Red October. It's contended that both the Americans and the British could have stopped him, but didn't. And this is what has raised various conspiratorial eyebrows. Was Trotsky an agent of some kind? Or as Sutton, Doherty and McGregor contend, was he let go specifically to bring the Bolshevik Revolution about? There's actually a division between Sutton and other writers in this area in that Sutton rejects Jewish conspiracy theories surrounding Trotsky. These centre on the banker Jacob Schiff, who, as I've said, certainly had a heavy hand in supporting the February Revolution. The idea of Schiff supporting Trotsky and the Bolsheviks seems to originate in a US government report titled Bolshevism and Judaism from November 1918. It asserted that, quote, In the spring 1917, Jacob Schiff, started to finance Trotsky, a Jew, for the purpose of accomplishing a social revolution in Russia. End quote. Schiff never showed any sympathy towards the Bolsheviks and had floated loans to the provisional government after Alexander Kerensky had declared the Jews to be equal citizens. The confidential source for Bolshevism and Judaism turned out to be Boris Brasol, the previously mentioned pro-Tsarist, anti-Semitic Russian lieutenant. It's pretty clear this is propaganda. Sutton himself even thinks so. However, it continues to influence conspiracy movements to this day. In 1949, a gossip columnist named Igor Cassini published an article claiming Jacob Schiff's son had revealed to him that his father had supplied Trotsky with $20 million worth of gold to carry out the revolution. Darty and McGregor accept this uncritically. Professor Richard Spence describes Cassini as, quote, a gossip columnist who made a career out of peddling rumours and making things up. End quote. Professor Spence does hold open the possibility that there could have been a connection between Schiff and Trotsky, but asserts that there is no proof of any such thing. I think it's the case that pre-World War II anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are picked up today and rebranded as New World Order conspiracies by people who are not themselves anti-Semites. The anti-Semitism of that era perpetuated this story about Jacob Schiff, and his involvement with the establishment of the Federal Reserve makes him a candidate for NWO conspiracies today. As you heard, Sutton considers it inexplicable that the British would detain and then release Trotsky. They detained him in Nova Scotia for around a month. At that time, Trotsky was not calling for Russia to sign a separate piece of Germany, 
so it's possible they actually thought he could be of benefit to them. In his book, Trotsky in New York, author Kenneth Akerman points out that the British had no legal basis for holding Trotsky, as they could not prove he was receiving support from the Germans. His detention was causing a scene internationally, but most concerningly, in Russia. The fact that the British were detaining a Russian citizen, a hero of the 1905 revolution no less, in order to prop up the provisional government, was an embarrassment to that government. Vladimir Lenin was making hay pointing this out. The Russian foreign minister had initially demanded Trotsky be released, but rescinded after the British informed him of his revolutionary intentions. Under increased domestic pressure, however, he reinstated that demand. As for the $10,000 Trotsky supposedly left New York with, this was reported in a telegram from British intelligence. The full sentence reads, quote, Trotsky is reliably reported to have $10,000 subscribed by socialists and Germans to start revolution against present Russian government. End quote. So, no mention of any Wall Street financiers. The question of the origin of the funds, hundreds of thousands in today's money, is probably irrelevant, however, as when Trotsky was detained and searched, there was no sign of it. So he either passed it off, threw it overboard, or it never existed in the first place. Kenneth Akerman points out that British intelligence got their information from a Russian-speaking informant with connections to the Okrona. It seems entirely likely that they simply fabricated a financial connection between Trotsky and the Germans in order to have an excuse to detain him. There does not then seem to be any great mystery to Trotsky's return to Russia. Woodrow Wilson did not, as one of his biographers claimed, provide him with a passport. Whilst it's quite possible there were unseen forces at play, there is no evidence the Americans or the British in any way wanted Trotsky to instigate a second revolution, as Sutton, Doherty and McGregor all claim. With hindsight, we know that's exactly what he did, but that wasn't the obvious outcome in April of 1917. I would suggest that Doherty and McGregor's thesis of using revolution to take Russia out of the war and keep the bear's paws off the Turkish Straits is flatly contradicted by subsequent British actions. There has always been speculation that the British attempted to assassinate Lenin in the Lockhart plot, named after the previously mentioned diplomat Bruce Lockhart. Whether that's true or not, what isn't in doubt is the Siberian intervention. After it became clear that the Bolsheviks were fully set upon signing a separate peace treaty with Germany, the Entente powers dispatched thousands of soldiers to Siberia to assist the anti-communist White Russian army. On the question of the Turkish Straits, I recently interviewed Professor Richard Spence and asked his opinion on whether Britain really was prepared to let Russia have them or not. Professor Spence had a different take on it. Well, you know, you go back to something like um, the British agreement with with Russia. It, it's it's like all the wartime treaties that are made. Okay, it's kind of this process of diplomatic seduction. So, the, what what what's happened in 1914 is that uh, through a set of circumstances, Britain, France, and Russia are now all allied against Germany. Now, remember, a couple of decades before, Russia was the big enemy and Germany wasn't. So things can, you know, all of this is subject to change. So it simply means that now, because the Russians are allies, you have to make them happy and you have to give them, you know, you have to, we have to agree how we're going to divide things up. So, yeah, promise them the Turkish Straits. 
Now, if, if you compare that to other wartime treaties, compare it like the the, uh, the the entry of Italy in into the war, the, the secret treaty of London. It's secret because no one's supposed to know about it. And the Italians get promised various things around the Adriatic that, guess what? Even though the war is won, come peacemaking in 1919, the Italians immediately get miffed because the British and French who had promised these things before now argue that, ah, you know... That's probably not such a good idea because because now we have to accommodate Yugoslavia, which is this thing we've created. So you can't, you know, the deal we made before, well, that was then, this is now. So that's one of the things to understand about wartime diplomatic agreements. It's like they'll agree to whatever you want now because this is now. And then later on, we'll see how this how this works out. Uh, I, I also don't quite buy the idea that Trotsky went back just to try to, you know, help screw up the whole Straits deal because you could have done that on your own. It, it, what, it, what it all depended on was who ended up in physical possession of the Straits at the war's end. That's what it depended upon. Do you, you do think it's quite plausible that Britain would have reneged on that, that they would have found a way to wiggle out of that or not given the Russians? In any way they possibly could have. <laughs> Right. No, they would have taken physical possession of the Straits as they actually did, and and then it would have taken another war probably to get them out of it, and there would have been a hole. You know. And plus, there's all the matter. You know, the other thing is that loan the Russians all kinds of money, okay, get them in debt. <laughs> so they can just trade that. Well, you know, the whole Straits thing, well, you owe us, you know, a lot of money, so maybe we'll, you know, we can make a deal on that as well. No, it was never a deal that was made with any intention of ever actually following through on it, if there was any way you could you could possibly avoid it. To round off the conspiracies then, there is Antony Sutton's final point about the American army assisting the Bolsheviks in Siberia. See, in 1918, the Bolsheviks really only controlled Moscow and what was then Petrograd, which is now Leningrad. They could not have beaten off uh, the White Russians, um, the, uh, the Czechs, who were in Russia at that time, uh, the Japanese, who were anti-Bolshevik. They could not have beaten it off without assistance from the United States and from Britain. And the Siberian Railroad is critical because if you look at that map of Russia, you know, Moscow is, and Leningrad are stuck at the left end and you've got the vast expanse of Russia, which, and the, the backbone is the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Now, the history books will tell you that American troops went in, they occupied the Trans-Siberian Railroad in order to prevent the Japanese from coming in. Well, this is absolute nonsense. Uh, I've never written the book. I hope to get around to it one day. I've got two big boxes of files on this. The purpose of the American army in Siberia was to hold the Trans-Siberian Railroad until the Bolsheviks were strong enough to take it over. And they did that very effectively. They held off the Japanese. They held them back near Manchuria. They evacuated the Czechs out along the Trans-Siberian Railroad. The French and the British gave up because they said the Americans are helping the Bolsheviks. They evacuated. And in one of these books, I reprinted a little clipping from the New York Times of, I think, 1919. Finally, the Bolsheviks got to Vladivostok right at the, uh, the far end of Siberia, near Japan in which the local commissar addressed the American army and thanked them for aiding the revolution. And that was in the New York Times, and I reprinted, reprinted it. Now, this is totally contrary to everything you find in the textbooks. The textbooks say we went into Siberia, 
um, to at least be neutral. And uh, I suppose most people would assume we went in to stop the Bolsheviks. We didn't. We went in to help the Bolsheviks. There's no question about that. But as I say, that's a book I haven't written yet. I have to admit to not being entirely clear what Anthony Sutton is referring to here. A lot of his claims are not presented in Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, and are therefore hard to critique specifically. The general position of historians has been that the US military presence in Russia was not focused on fighting the Bolsheviks, but was principally concerned with protecting weapons from falling into German hands, and helping to evacuate thousands of Allied Czech soldiers who were stranded there. In his book, America's Secret War Against Bolshevism, U.S. Intervention in the Russian Civil War, 1917-20, historian Dr. David Fogelsong challenges this position, but in the opposite direction to Sutton. After acknowledging a direct intervention using U.S. troops to fight the Bolsheviks was politically untenable for Woodrow Wilson, Wilson wanted a third term and was reliant on the socialist vote, Dr. Fogelsong describes the covert ways in which his administration attacked the Bolsheviks. It's wrong, I think, to say intervention only consisted of the small military interventions in northern Russia and eastern Siberia, because intervention actually involved a number of other ways of trying to influence the course of the Russian Civil War. So in the book, the first book that I wrote that Father Loya mentioned in his introduction, America's Secret War Against Bolshevism, this is the crux of what I argued. What am I talking about? Bolsheviks come to power in November 1917. Woodrow Wilson refuses to have diplomatic relations with the new Soviet government. In fact, the United States refuses to establish diplomatic relations with Soviet Russia until 1933. That's right. The British and the French and the Italians and the Germans all established diplomatic relations with Soviet Russia by 1924. But the Wilsonian precedent of refusing to shake hands with the bloody Bolsheviks who are immoral, Wilson refuses to have diplomatic relations with them. Instead, Wilson continues to maintain diplomatic relations with uh, Boris Bakhmetyev, Boris Bakhmetyev, who is the ambassador of the provisional government. The provisional government, as those of you and Professor Hartnett's of course know, provisional government in power between February and October of 1917. So Bakhmetyev no longer represents a government that exists. But the United States continues to recognize him as the ambassador of the Russian people, as the representative of the kind of Russia that America wants to see, a return to democracy, a return to American-influenced development. So we continue to recognize the ambassador of the Persian government. So that's important in saying this is what we stand for, this is what we want to see in Russia. We despise the Bolsheviks, and we refuse to have anything to do with them. But why is it important in practical terms that Wilson continues to maintain um, the ambassador? So the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. continues to be controlled by Bakhmetyev. Why is that important? It has a political, ideological dimension. It, it means you establish diplomatic relations, mean you, you essentially accept that de facto they're in power, and maybe even you accept the legitimacy of the government. That's certainly the Wilsonian idea, that diplomatic relations doesn't just mean that you accept that they are in power. To Wilson, diplomatic relations mean we morally approve of the, of the government. And so Wilson will withhold, withhold that. But there's also a practical reason. Wilson can use the embassy, 
the Russian embassy in Washington, D.C. as a channel for passing funding to anti-Bolshevik forces in the Russian Civil War because the Wilson administration had um, given the provisional government of Russia, the Kerensky government of 1917, $300 million worth of loans to buy American military equipment. They hadn't managed to use all $300 million in 1917. So the unexpunded funds, more than $100 million, could be used for other purposes without having to go to Congress for a congressional appropriation, without having to go to Congress and say, well, we don't like the Bolsheviks. We do like the anti-Bolsheviks. How about it? Can you give us 50 or $100 million to go fund the... Wilson doesn't have to go to Congress for that appropriation because the funds have already been appropriated for military purposes related to the war against Germany. They're just being held on the books. So this is a method of covert intervention. And it's not the only uh, um, um, method of covert intervention. Decided upon in the weeks after the Bolshevik seizure of power. In December 1917, Wilson also approves Robert Lansing's suggestion that the United States should pass uh, money to the British and the French, who would then turn around and give that money to anti-Bolshevik forces, Cossack forces, gathering in the south of Russia, a guy named uh, Kaledin, a guy named Kornilov in the south of Russia. So Wilson has a series of ways of trying to pass funding to anti-Bolshevik forces without saying publicly that that's what he was doing. Professor Richard Spence writes about a plan in late 1920 to transfer 40,000 white army soldiers from their exile in Turkey to Siberia. It was hoped they could turn the tide in the ongoing civil war. According to a former KGB officer, the Americans squashed this plan, issuing a serious warning to the Japanese due to the Soviets' offer of lucrative concessions in the East. So perhaps there was a change in strategy at some point, where the red horse began to look like a better bet than the white one. If this was the case, we are reliant on the testimony of an ex-KGB officer, it seems clearly driven by immediate commercial interests rather than any long-term goal of bringing the Bolsheviks to power. The US government was consistently opposed to that. As an aside, I can't pass up on Dr. Fulkerson's observations of the implications of the Russian intervention for the later rise of the national security state. For critics in Congress, like Senator Hiram Johnson from California, for critics in Congress, this is a very important and very worrying development. If Woodrow Wilson, without getting an authorization from Congress, can, in conjunction with the British and the French, send American troops into northern Russia and eastern Siberia to do something that may be in the interest of the British and the French, with their imperialistic ambitions, but is not in the interest of the United States, that's a very dangerous sign of undemocratic use of force, unconstitutional use of force, on behalf of who knows, some kind of imperialistic purposes, but not on behalf of American interests. That's a sign of a dangerous development for the future of a kind of a national security state that is going to usurp the traditional functions of uh, uh, Congress in an American democracy. So that's a worrying sign to Hiram Johnson and others who are critics of Wilson's intervention. And that points towards a long-term legacy in the United States because you know that in the 1950s, who's the director of Central Intelligence? Who's the director of CIA in the 1950s? Alan Dulles. Alan Dulles, right. And who's the Secretary of State? 
John Foster Doyle is very good. What were they doing in 1918? Earlier. When did they get their start in the diplomatic service? Alan Dulles in 1917-1918 was a junior diplomat posted to Central Europe. His uncle, Robert Lansing, was the Secretary of State. That didn't hurt his getting a start in the diplomatic service. John Foster Dulles was working with the War Trade Board, which is in charge of, among other things, overseeing the shipments of supplies to the anti-Bolshevik forces in the Russian Civil War. Alan Dulles, as a junior diplomat, is witnessing development in Central, Central Europe, including the establishment of a Hungarian Soviet, a Hungarian Soviet-style government, a Bavarian Soviet-style government. He's seeing the spread of Bolshevism into Eastern Europe, and Alan Dulles thinks, like John Foster Dulles, they're like Winston Churchill. We should take action to, to stop this Bolshevik menace right now. But they also realize that Woodrow Wilson is hampered by being in what Woodrow Wilson called a whispering gallery. That is, that it's no longer like the Congress of Vienna. You can't just do diplomacy behind closed doors. Newspaper editors are watching. The news gets all out around the world. You have to be attentive to what's going to be the implication on, for public opinion and for Congress. Therefore, you can't do things overtly and directly, intervention. You need to do it quietly. So propaganda, covert action, secretive methods of intervention. This is one of the lessons that John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles learn in 1918 and 1919, which they will then remember in the late 1940s and 1950s when the United States moved to establish more formally a covert action capability with the Central Intelligence Agency. Let's look now at Anthony Sutton's claim of US economic support for the Bolsheviks in the years after the revolution. The factories were closed down, Russia was starving. By 1922, Lenin himself said the end has come. They had no food, they had these uh, these uh, closed down plants, the plants were not destroyed in the revolution. That's what the textbooks will tell you, including Kennan, the State Department expert. He says the, the plants, were, the Russian factories were destroyed in the revolution. They were not destroyed. Why? Because I've seen the photographs after the revolution and right in the Hoover Institution Tower. There are these massive boxes of photographs of Russian industry after the revolution. They, they could not operate the plants. So what do we do with Avril Harriman and uh, the Nash Chase Bank and National Bank and our old friends in Wall Street? They go in there. And of course, the Hoover mission to feed Russia. We go in there and we have these 250, 300 concessions in which American companies went into Russia and they started up the idle plants. Harriman, Avril Harriman took the manganese concessions, Armand Hammer, Occidental Petroleum, took the pencil factories and the asbestos plants. And all these top capitalists went in and they got Russia going on behalf of the Bolsheviks because the Bolsheviks were either shot or kicked out all the people who could run, all the Russians who could run the plants. Documenting the extent of business relationships between Soviet Russia and the United States is, I think, the most valuable aspect of Antony Sutton's work. In spite of the US not recognizing the Bolshevik government until 1933, which meant American businessmen had none of the normal diplomatic protections, extensive business did take place. With Germany knocked down, the post-war period brought the opportunity for American capitalists to carve out their share of Russian markets, and that opportunity had to be taken, irrespective of who governed the place. It's Sutton's interpretation of this, 
that it was done to prop up the Bolsheviks, which I think is incorrect. The Bolsheviks were a real problem, as they would default on loans and go on to nationalise American businesses. What I perceive is going on is simply division in how best to deal with this problem. Should the Bolsheviks be strangled at birth, as Winston Churchill put it? Or, through cooperation, can they be reformed into a business-friendly government? Can the pigs be relied upon to turn Animal Farm back into Manor Farm, or do we need to find another Mr. Jones? This is further illustrated by Sutton's comments on famine relief. In 1921, the US Congress appropriated $20 million to alleviate famine in Russia. 300 Americans worked in the Soviet Union to coordinate the feeding of 10.5 million people a day, whilst at the same time overcoming a typhus epidemic. The famine was no doubt in part a result of communist policies, and Sutton interprets this as a propping up of that failed ideology. However, those carrying it out, in addition to its humanitarian value, saw it as a way to demonstrate the overwhelming superiority of American capitalism. We have so much food, we can even afford to give it away, so to speak. The United States no doubt pursued a contradictory approach to Russia, of making her an enemy, but also building up that enemy. It is this that Sutton objects to. He concludes his book by saying, quote, Wall Street went to bat in Washington for the Bolsheviks. It succeeded. The Soviet totalitarian regime survived. In the 1930s, foreign firms mostly of the Morgan Rockefeller Group, built the five-year plans. They have continued to build Russia, economically and militarily. On the other hand, Wall Street presumably did not foresee the Korean War and the Vietnam War, in which 100,000 Americans and countless allies lost their lives to Soviet armaments built with this same imported US technology. What seemed a far-sighted, an undoubtedly profitable policy for a Wall Street syndicate became a nightmare for millions outside the elitist power circle and the ruling class. End quote. It can of course be objected that the loss of American lives in Korea and Vietnam was overwhelmingly the fault of Uncle Sam for sending his boys there in the first place. An entirely opposite approach, as advocated by William Blum at the opening of this podcast, of dropping the belligerents and keeping the trade could also have been pursued. To who knows what end. The one final issue I'd like to look at is the question of whether communism in Russia was supported as a way to kneecap her economy and prevent her becoming an industrial competitor to the United States. The second statement I made was that they did not want the Soviet Union to develop into another free enterprise society and that this would offset, offset it aiding the revolution would offset this event. That was made as a statement in 1919. The idea that an imperial power would seek to handicap a rising competitor through installing not a compliant government, but a dysfunctional one, is fascinating. But again, is it true? Or at the least, does Antony Sutton provide evidence for it in the case of Russia? What 1919 statement is Sutton referring to? that they did not want Russia to develop into a free enterprise society. And who is they? In spite of what Sutton says, the US government was opposed to the Bolsheviks, and it seems strange that individual American businessmen would think on such a grand scale. From reading Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, 
I assume Sutton is referring to a testimony he includes from the Overman Committee. This was a subcommittee of the US Senate that investigated both German and Bolshevik influences within the United States. It's a forerunner to the Cold War's House of Un-American Activities Committee. Sutton quotes the testimony of a witness to the committee, Albert Rees Williams, who Sutton describes as an astute commentator on the revolution. Williams was advocating for the United States to recognise the Soviet government, and stated that, quote, It is probably true that under the Soviet government, industrial life will perhaps be much slower in development than under the usual capitalistic system. But why should a great industrial country like America desire the creation and consequent competition of another great industrial rival? Are not the interests of America in this regard in line with the slow tempo of development which Soviet Russia projects for herself? End quote. Sutton does not inform the reader who Williams is. Could he be a Wall Street financier, a captain of industry, or a foreign policy wonk supportive of America maintaining her supremacy in the world? No, none of the above. Given someone as anti-communist as Sutton describes Williams as an astute commentator on the revolution, it is surprising to learn that he is in fact a communist. Williams travelled to Russia in 1917 as a correspondent for the New York Post. During the October Revolution, he attended the storming of the Winter Palace and became friends with Vladimir Lenin. He remained a supporter of Lenin his whole life. He opposed the Allied intervention into Russia and volunteered for service in the Red Army. Upon his return to the United States, he worked as a pro-Soviet activist, and it is in this capacity he was invited to speak before the Overman Committee. It is very surprising that a card-carrying communist would be the one to make the case for communism being a less effective economic system. So surprising, in fact, I felt the need to dig out the committee's transcripts. And it turns out, he doesn't. Sutton quotes Senator Josiah Walcott, saying to Williams, quote, So you are presenting an argument here that you think might appeal to the American people. Your point being this, that if we recognise the Soviet government of Russia... As it is constituted, we will be recognising a government that cannot compete with us in industry for a great many years. End quote. And Williams replies, That is a fact. Perhaps Senator Walcott was incredulous, as he basically repeated the same question. Sutton quotes Williams' second reply as, Absolutely. And that is where Sutton concludes. Williams, however, does not conclude there. Absolutely was just the first word of a longer answer, where he goes on to say, quote, It has no great chance under any government. It has no great chance to develop industrially for years and years to come. But the point is that the people of the Soviet governments are not obsessed with the idea of a great industrial country. They do not want to build it up suddenly. They are perfectly content to let Russia remain agricultural to a large extent in the future. End quote. In other words, Williams is not suggesting communist economics will handicap Russia, but rather that the people of the country do not desire industrialization, and the Soviet form of government serves those people. On all points, he was dead wrong. The Soviet government did not serve the people, and went hell forever in pursuit of industrialization, the pace of which was retarded by communist economics. But the point is, his testimony is certainly not evidence of a plan from within the American overworld to use communism as a weapon against Russia. If this is the best evidence Sutton can present, 
it really constitutes no evidence at all. And I will wrap this up here. I'm quite satisfied in this episode that I've been able to come down more firmly on one side or other of a line. But maybe you think I've got it wrong, and the West really did intend to bring about communism in Russia. Let me know. I have some further thoughts on Anthony Sutton, which I'll put out in a separate episode, focusing more on perception and the nature of conspiracy. I'll list the resources I've drawn upon for this episode in the info box. I've also started a substack, and I'll aim to have some sort of footnoted transcript available there soon-ish. As I mentioned, I've interviewed Professor Richard Spence, author of War Street and the Russian Revolution, and I hope to have that out in the next few days. Thank you very much for listening. I'm not sure where I'm going to go next time, but it will be somewhere in the direction of the conclusion of the war and the League of Nations. <laughs>